I uh, have really enjoyed the last week because I was not preparing for a sermon. I got to spend Christmas with my family and New Year's Eve at a wedding. And, you know, it's so great when, when you don't have a sermon because it's never pressing on your mind. And you can actually talk to people and not worry about it. How do I do that? Well, I always get somebody else to talk so that I can actually, you know, have an easy time that week. And this week, since the rest of the staff was trying to do the same thing as I was, I thought, you know, I'm going to call my old friend, Dave. <laughs> okay, I don't know what's going on. We all right? I'm going to call my old friend David Meserve. Now, Dave Meserve and I first met in a preaching class at Denver Seminary. And I always remember it because the instructor liked Dave's sermons better than mine. And the truth to be told, I did as well. Um, so Dave and I formed this immediate mutual fan club. And uh, that was several years ago. And uh, let me tell you a little bit about Dave. Dave uh, left college and went to be on staff with Campus Crusade for Christ. After doing that for a while, came to Denver in order to go to school uh, to be a counselor. And uh, somewhere in there, got a job at Cherry Hills Community Church uh, as the uh, singles guy. We had that in common. Went on to do men's ministry there and various other things. And we've kept in contact over the years. And then uh, it wasn't too many years after I left the traditional church that David left Cherry Hills Community Church to start something called Urban Sky. Urban Sky is not a church, but it's a missional community of people. They've got a group for artists. They've got a group for poets. They've got a group for film buffs. They've got a group for spiritual seekers. And they meet in various places all around the city. And um, they have these events that occur from time to time. And they're also kind of an artistic bunch. So if you've been with us the last several Christmas seasons, you've seen us use these booklets uh, for Advent. Those are all manufactured and produced by Urban Sky. Uh, and we really, really like them. Uh, Dave was telling me that our sermon series for this year, uh, the Joseph Hero's Journey thing, is probably going to end up being an Urban Sky Advent Guide sometime next year. So I'm really excited about him being here. And as long as uh, we get this crackling figured out, Dave, should we change microphones or something? Oh. Should we do that? Well, you guys won't be able to see him very well. Is it, is it, what is it, batteries? What is it? We don't know what it is. The cheap microphone. And if you, you know, got some extra Christmas money and want to buy scum and nice remote mic, uh, please uh, remember us. Dave, I think I'm going to have you down there. Okay. So I'm going to have Dave down there. I'm sorry you guys aren't going to be able to see him as well. Uh, but, um, you're not missing a lot, he says. Uh, but this is my good friend, Dave Mazur. Please welcome him. Thank you. 
Oh, thanks, Mike. That's good. Uh, okay, whatever you want to do. I just want to say that my last week sucked because I had to prepare this sermon. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm, I'm happy to do it. Oh, yeah, the last time. The last time you were here to speak. Okay, I'll put that there. The, uh, the only other time I've preached at uh, Scum of the Earth, you were at Church in the City, kind of at the end of that time, which is an interesting place. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm doing my sermon, and uh, I noticed that everybody is looking over there. And so as I'm trying to stay on my notes, I kind of glance over, and there was a guy, he's on his knees doing this. And, uh, and then everybody kind of turned back toward me, and, his, and then the guy just wanders right up and just kneels in front of me and starts talking to me. So I stopped and said, can I help you? And he said something, and we got that taken care of, and he went out with uh, some friends, and I, I pretty much lost the audience at that point. But that was my experience the last time I was here. And, but they prepared me. They said, you just never know uh, when you come here what's going to happen. But um, I, I love being here because um, I know you guys. I mean, some of you actually do know personally. Uh, John uh, and Raylene and I actually worked together way back in the day at uh, Cherry Hills, and I see people from other places I've been. But I know you because I remember when you all began, uh, because Mike and I have been friends that long. And I'll talk about that a little later. Um, but I, as Mike said, I am a great fan of Scum of the Earth and Mike Sayers, and I'm, uh, I'm thrilled to be here. And at least we forget it's January 1st. It's a new year. Does that mean anything to anybody? I, I think some people find, John, no. I didn't think so, John. Some people find significance in the fact that it's a new year. Now, it, it feels more significant in the morning when you wake up. By the nighttime, you're like, 2012, who cares? We've been doing this for a while. But if you're part of different cultures, there's certain cultures that take this very seriously. If you... Uh, have an affinity for the Chinese culture, for example. Do you know what the year 2012 is the year of the dragon? Very good. It, last year was the year of the bunny. That just is terrible, you know, the bunny. So my son thought that was cool, that uh, was now the year of the dragon in 2012. Um, if you have an affinity for Jewish numerology, I ran into a friend who's kind of into that, and he says 12 is a, is a very significant number in numerology. Certainly from uh, our perspective, you read the Old Testament and the New Testament, you see that. And that because it's the 12th year, that uh, it's supposed to be a year of great blessing. I, I hope so. Um, I ran into another friend asked, talking about the new year, and he is um, kind of part of a kind of an apostolic kind of faith and uh, a prophetic faith. And I said, well, what do you think about the year to come? And he says, what I hear from I don't know who. He says, I think it's supposed to be this year of, of kingdom growth. I go, oh, good, that's great, I hope so. And then, I don't know how many of you are Mayans, maybe a few of you, just one, one Mayan here this evening. Well, the world is going to end, and uh, it, it actually is going to end on my daughter's 21st birthday. Is that in December 21st, 2012, my daughter turns 21, and the day she can finally legally buy beer and cigarettes, the world ends. Let that be a lesson to all of you, that's what I've told her. Um, so some people really historically found great significance in this. Um, I find some significance in this. I think there's something about God giving us seasons, God giving us the way the universe is put together, that every year something, uh, something leaves and something comes. And there is this sense of possibility. I don't do resolutions anymore. I used to, but, you know, I forget them by February, and so I, I felt too guilty. So I don't do those, but there is this sense that maybe this year might open up some possibilities. 
that it didn't last year. And you may feel that way. Um, now, as Christians, uh, you may feel that way as well, that perhaps you look back on your 2011 and think, thank God, it's over. And maybe you look back and you, you get a chance to kind of see the perspective of 12 months and, and, and how you've changed, perhaps. And you look forward to 2012. Well, we are going to look at this sense of newness, and it is the theme to think about on January 1st. And the passage that we're going to look at comes from 2 Corinthians 5.17, kind of our central passage for the evening. And it says this, and if you're likely familiar with this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old has passed away, and the new has come. Now this is true of all of us who are in Christ. You are a new creation. The problem is you don't often feel like a new creation or believe it. And it takes something for us to be energized by that fact. And what I want to talk about tonight is really a Christian imagination, which is necessary for understanding what it means to be a new creation in Christ. Now, imagination, we tend to think about it often as uh, imagination is, is, is as, a oppo- as opposed to what is real, like an imaginary friend that some of you grew up with, maybe, I don't know, still have. When I asked my son, Charlie, he just turned 12, I'm like, Charlie, when, I, when you hear imagination, what do you think of? And he did this. Some of you will get this. Imagination. It's from SpongeBob. Thank you. Yes, SpongeBob. Every time you hear SpongeBob say imagination, he does this and a rainbow appears. So my son, I'm like, what do you think of with imagination? He goes, rainbows. <laughs> um, so there you have it. But that's really not what imagination is about. Uh, imagination is the ability, in a sense, in your mind's eye, you might say, to perceive things that aren't coming through the senses. In that way, it is a lot like faith. And, and to have an imagination, a Christian imagination, is not only a nice thing, it's a necessary thing. And I think this is a good time to think about it, beginning of a new year. And specifically, we want to talk about what does it mean to be a new creation and have kind of new eyes as we enter this new year. Well, let me give you just uh, some very brief, but a, a scope of how imagination is used in the, in the Bible. The word itself is not a, a, it's not a popular word. Um, in the NIV, in, in for example, it's only used two times and both negative. Um, New American Standard, the one I grew up with, same thing. Now, the King James, any of you King James fans, it's used 14 times, and uh, all but one are negative. So as a word, not a very popular word, and maybe why sometimes within even the Christian community, the idea of being very active in your imagination is met with some suspicion, and I hope we can overcome that. God is a God of imagination, and we see that from the beginning. When he says in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, that is an act of imagination, um, to create out of nothing, which only God can do, is what drives imagination. To see something and then implement it, bring it into being, is that not imagination? Um, one of my favorite uh, stories about Michelangelo and one of his quotes, supposedly after he created David. And have you ever seen him live? Live. He's dead, but you've seen him? It's a beautiful statue. I went a uh, long time ago with and my wife, who was, took a lot of art history classes, loved being there in Florence. And, and, and I didn't get, I didn't appreciate it as much as my wife did until I came to the academy and I saw David there, my namesake. 
He's 17 feet tall. He weighs six tons. And you just, I just sat there and was mesmerized by this. Now, as the legend has it, he was asked, Michelangelo, he was asked, how did you do this? It's, it's beautiful. It was recognized immediately as, a, as, a, as one of the most beautiful pieces of art anyone had ever seen. And he says, I basically, I, I looked at this big stone, this big slab of marble, and I just kind of carved out everything that wasn't David. The quote you see is, every block of stone has a statue inside it, and the task of the sculptor is to discover it. One time he was, he had created an angel, and he was asked that question. He says, I saw an angel uh, in it, and I just carved until I was able to set him free. I, I love that image in the sense that we're marble, we're these blocks, and there is a vision toward us by God and by the faith community that gets to chisel away at us and create this beautiful thing that we were designed for. And so Michelangelo really was a genius, and he looked at this, and he could see David within it. And a little historical fact that that slab, other people, and da Vinci may have been one of them, rejected that offer. It was commissioned. Uh, Michelangelo was actually the third guy commissioned to this. The first two started a little bit and then had to, to stop. And other people looked at this and said, the stone's flawed, the marble is flawed, too many veins in it. And Michelangelo took it because he had this imagination. And we understand that in the world of art, how important that is. So God began the world in imagination. And the Genesis accounts of creation, one of the most important things to me is not simply how it explains the beginning of our world, and there's lots of thought and debate about that, But what it says about God, and the first thing we learn is that God is a God of imagination. He creates out of nothing. And as we are to mimic God, especially in the incarnate form of Jesus, then maybe we should be imaginative as well. Well, things unraveled fast in the biblical story, as you all know, and it comes just within a few chapters to the flood and Noah's Ark. It always gets me that, uh, I know some of you have kids, but one of the the most popular mobiles that you hang over a kid's crib is a little Noah's Ark. I mean, it's one of the favorite Bible stories, and it's brutal. <laughs> I mean, God destroys the world. Um, and yet, you know, we have it with our kids. It's kind of a disconnect for me. But when you think about it or ask yourself, why in the world would God do that? And again, lots of discussion around that. But this is what the text said. And in the King James Version, this is the first time we see this word translated imagination. And God saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that the, every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And so it's not that whether you have an imagination or not, we all have exercise imagination. It's kind of what kind of imagination do you have? And God saw that the world needed to be, get the pun, flushed because All they could imagine was evil. They would wake up in the mornings, they would come to a new year, and they would think about the year only in terms of perhaps satisfying themselves and uh, only evil continually. And that was the only imagination that was being cultivated. And so God said that's that's not good. And so we are going to, in a sense, start over. Now, Walter Brueggemann, there's a quote you'll see, is an Old Testament professor, one of my favorites, and he says this when he writes about the prophets. He says, the contest, therefore, is not about the imagination and the real. It's between two types of imagination. And the question that we face in our culture and our churches is, 
What captures your imagination? Um, i got to look to make sure I have it up there. Oh, yeah, the swastika. I did stick that up there. The swastika was an amazing act of imagination by Hitler. Devious, corrupt, but amazing. When Hitler uh, wrote Mein Kampf, his kind of his both autobiography, but really uh, about how to develop this ideal, um, this uh, Uberman. And, and he wrote it, but he talked about things like the swastika. And in 1920, right after World War I, he began to come into power, and he wanted the swastika to become um, a, a symbol, and he, he helped design it, he helped uh, put it together. And what he said was this, we need something that shows uh, kind of the character of the Germanic people. And there's reasons for that particular emblem. But he also said this, and it's got to look good on a poster. I mean, this is what he says. Because he knew if it got out there and captured people's imagination, it would help the cause. And it is, sadly, one of the most recognizable symbols in the world. And Hitler, in that way, was evil but a genius. What captures the imagination really wins the day. In 2003, there was a book that came out, and I was working for this large church at the time, and uh, I think John and Raylene were gone uh, by that time. And in this church, uh, we had this severe reaction to a book that came out, The Da Vinci Code. All right, you've, a lot of you have read this. I read it, and, and some of you have seen the movie. I haven't seen the movie yet, but, but it came out, and I don't know if you're part of kind of the evangelical world, but it was crazy. Just this violent reacted against it. And the reason was, it's because it's not true. And you read that book, it's a, it's a fictional book. I mean, there's some historical um, groups and some history about it, but the big thrust of the book is just not true. But that doesn't seem to bother people. Um, they didn't really care that it wasn't true. But what it did was it captured the... <laughs> it captured the imagination. And that was my response to it, was that... It wasn't that it was such good writing. I think it was kind of pulp fiction-y to me. But it captured people's imagination in ways that the church did not. And I remember being in this church, and I'm very fond of this church. But I thought the reason we're talking about it is because we have not captured people's imagination, and this book has, because everyone loves a good conspiracy. And the greatest divine conspiracy is the church and what we're called to do and to be. That's the real conspiracy, and that's what should capture our imagination. It was around this time I read a quote by C.S. Lewis. I'm sorry I don't have it on a slide, but I thought this was really interesting. When he's talking about how people um, seek truth, he says the organ of truth or the vehicle to find truth, he says, is reason, and he's talking about rational truth. If you want rational truth, then reason is your vehicle. If you want meaning... The vehicle for meaning is imagination. This is why he wrote so many fictional works to get across truth and for people to find meaning in. And I think that's absolutely the case. And I think in our culture, by and large, people aren't really seeking truth. I remember the 70s, when a little bit of the 60s, where people talked about you know the search for truth. People aren't really seeking truth, in my opinion, the way we used to talk about it. People are seeking meaning in their life. I mean, why are you here? So if you're after meaning and you want to invite other people into a meaningful life, it's imagination is the vehicle to do it. Not to discount reason, but just to understand that reason has its place.
That's the contest. Well, as you go on to the prophets, um, uh, the, the people of God, you know, they have to go into exile and the prophets begin to speak into exile. And what they do is they begin to kind of combat the dominant culture, but they begin to give them hope because without hope, we're, we're just toast without hope. And this is what they begin to say. Here's Isaiah 43, 19. He says, God speaks through Isaiah and says, see, I'm doing a new thing. How it springs up. Do you not perceive it? This was the question in the community of faith. God's doing a new thing. God continues to create. Do you get it? Do you see it? Do you have eyes to see? And then he goes on to say, he says, I will create a new heavens and a new earth. And so there's this constant sense of recreation going on that we get to be part of. And the recreation isn't simply the cosmos, but as Ezekiel says, it's really us as well. And he says, I will give you a new heart. I will put a new spirit within you. And I'm going to take your heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh. This is the promise for God's people. And it's beautiful. And we get to be part of it. And so Jesus comes into the picture. And i got to show you, this is, a, this is an icon. And I, I was telling Will, my mother did this. I don't know if you've seen this one, Mike. My mom did this in the 70s, gave it to our pastor growing up. And, and he lives in the Springs, and 35 years later on his bucket list, he gives it to me. It's now in my office, um, and I love it. This is an aside because I'm bragging on my mom. But um, go ahead and go to the next slide, Will. What Paul prays for us is this sense of new eyes. And in the Ephesians, in that first chapter when he's thanking God for the people, and he does his prayer, and there's great theologies in these prayers. And he says, I pray that the eyes of your heart will be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you. And I think that phrase, the eyes of your heart, is coined by Paul. Beautiful, isn't it? So this is the calling. The eyes of your heart need to be enlightened. Why? So that you understand that you see the hope of his calling. Now I want to show you one of my very favorite quotes of all time. It's uh, by a man named Marcel Proust, who, by all accounts, was certainly not a confessional Christian. But I've loved this quote, and it says something similar. He says, The real voyage of discovery consists not in seeking new landscapes, but in having new eyes. And with that, I want to take us back to that passage in 2 Corinthians and think about what it means to be a new creation and to have these new eyes. Again, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, and behold, the new is here. Something new is happening, and you are part of it. Do you have the eyes to see it? Now, in the greater context of this, um, Paul is going to talk about what we have new eyes to see, what, what is seen through the new eyes of being in the new creation. We're going to talk about these quickly, but the first one is this. We have new eyes to see Christ. And he says, we used to look at Christ in a way he called kind of a, from a worldly perspective. But no longer do we see him that way. Paul would have seen Christ as a very popular teacher, probably a dangerous teacher. And eventually, when he gets confronted by Jesus on the Damascus Road, his whole view changed. And so we begin with how you see Jesus says so much about us. G.K. Chesterton said this. He says, The function of imagination is not to make strange things settled so much as to make settled things strange. 
If you have been on this faith journey for a long time, and some of you have been, you're still needing to be involved in this new creation. How do you see Christ? How do you see Christ? It's like the guy that would never tell his wife that he loves her because he said, well, you know, I said it to you when we got married. It just stands until I take it away. And that doesn't go very far. How do you see Christ? I mentioned this this morning. But one of the things that I'm I'm asking God to give me a sanctified imagination about is this phrase, which has been part of, of my faith journey since I can remember it. It's Jesus died on the cross for your sins. I believe that with my whole heart. But for me now, it has become settled to a point where I think it needs new imagination. And my hunch is with you, there might be something like that. Have you ever seen that bumper sticker? God said it. I believe it. That settles it. I don't like that bumper sticker. <laughs> and uh, I just, I, I don't know. If you have it on your car, I apologize. Was it on the car out there that got towed? It served you right if you had that on there. But listen, I went too far on that one. Sorry, Mark. God said it. I believe it. That settles it. And again, that, that sense of all we need to do is just understand the facts and it's settled. Jesus died the cross for my sins. Well, I believe that's true. But it takes new eyes, a new, a renewed heart for me to embody that and see that as something uh, important to, to me. So we begin by having new eyes for Christ, which is, should be part of our prayers. And then we move on. I'm going to spend a little more time on this. Is talking about new eyes for each other. He says, not only do you have a different perspective of Christ as a new creation, you have a new way to look at each other. And he's speaking really about the community of faith here. Um, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. How do you see each other? How do you see each other? Do you have those new kinds of eyes? And C.S. Lewis says, there are no ordinary people. C.S. Lewis writes this great book called The Weight of Glory, and he says, nobody's ordinary. And he says, if you were able to really see people as they were, um, and really, in a sense, where they were headed, you would either want to run in horror from what they really were, or you would be tempted to bow down and worship. He just says, glory is that rich and heavy. You've never met a mortal. So the question is, or one of my questions is, as people have looked at you, have you had those kinds of words that prompt you to live as a new creation? And have you offered those words to other people? That's what the community of faith must do, I believe. Now, I've uh, grown up uh, in, the, in the church world for, for a long time, kind of the conservative church world, and, and uh, I've seen a lot. And I remember when Scum of the Earth was birthed, Mike and I were logging classes together and spent a, had spent a lot of time together. And I, I remember talking to you after kind of the meeting where you chose your name. I'm Reese Roper, who some of you know. Reese's mom, I worked with, with uh, Ruth. So I'm hearing all this, and it's one of my favorite stories about how your name came to be, and you know that story. Um, and I thought, scum of the earth. Scum of the earth, and, and, and I think it wasn't simply going, okay, we are different. Some of us have not felt welcome in kind of the, the normal church. And as Paul writes and says, when people view us, their worldly perspective toward us is like, you're like the scum of the earth, the refuse of the world. 
And I don't think when the name was chosen that the original group who felt that way thought, well, we're just, we just want a church for us. I think it was to embody that and said, there's something very true about that, as Paul says. People look at us from a worldly point of view, but we know better. And that is the gift of a sanctified Christian imagination, to know how valuable you are. In my church world, this, this, this kind of conservative church world that I've been part of for a long time, um, I have to say that in terms of your own slogan of the right brain and the left out, I don't know how much I fit just in that slogan. And it's my, I love the slogan. I tell people about it all the time. I'm a little right-brained, I guess. Um, but I've never, I'm not a left-out kind of guy. In fact, it's, it's been rare in my life that I've been left out. And when it comes to the church world, I've been very much welcomed and invited in. One of the reasons for this is because of a gift that I have, and it's the gift of teaching. Now, this is not that I'm God's gift of teaching. (laughs) Far from it. I did nail one back in seminary. But other than that, but I, I, I think when you think about your teaching gift that Mike also has, but I go, if you're in this world that I've been in, And if you could choose the gift you'd want to have, this is the gift that you would want. Teaching. You get to be up in front of people. I work for a church of like 8,000. I have to be up in front of them once in a while. And when you're in that role, um, sometimes that's all people see when you have that kind of gift. And some of you have been pegged because of a particular gift that you have. You get labeled that way. Or a particular characteristic. Oh, you're the class clown. Oh, you're the, you know, the, oh, you're the geeky smart one. Or you're the, you know, the pretty one. And, and by being labeled like that, there's no imagination left. Now, I didn't realize this at the time, but this was going on, and, and here I was at this big church, and I had a good job, and uh, I got to use this gift. And uh, it was during the summer where I was about to make a move and say it was time for me to leave. And I'd been there for 15 years almost. So it was been a long time in coming. And I was very settled there. Uh, but my faith was not. And this particular summer, um, I got invited to Frisco because a buddy of mine, he was a pastor out of state, was bringing a bunch of kids here for, you know, several weeks of the summer. And they were inviting different people to come in and talk to him. It was college students. Like, I've worked with college students. And so he invited me in to speak to them. He said, here's your topic and do whatever you want. And so I did it. But I didn't do it alone. Um, Some friends of mine for out of town. He's one of my best friends. Uh, He's a little bit older, almost like a mentor to me in in many ways. He was visiting, and so we took our families up, and we were staying in, I I don't know where, Breckenridge or Silverthorne. and, And we drove over to Frisco to do this together. And I remember getting up there, and I'm looking out, and I, I started in, and I remember doing a joke. And you know those scenes in movies where you do a joke, and it's just crickets, you know? Nobody responded at all. It, <laughs> it was awful. And, and I just never uncovered, and I, it was just a horrible experience. And I was terrible. I mean, you can have a gift of something, but it doesn't mean you're good at it a lot. And I remember driving, and we had kind of a long drive to go back to our family with my friend Al, and, and I, I just felt embarrassed and ashamed, and, and I was trying to kind of change the subject. We had this silence for a while, and he finally said, Dave, I don't think teaching is your primary gift. And I'm thinking, no kidding. But I didn't say anything, 
And he says, I think it's something else. And then he gave me a word. And he goes, I don't know, but I think it might be this. And he gave me a word that launched me into a new season of life. It was as if he saw something in me that nobody else saw because of this one gift that was obvious enough. That's the only thing I could be seen as. And I bet this has happened to you. But this is what happens in the community of faith. To know people, that's why you have these things like dinners and all these other things, so that you can look at them and say, I see you, I know you, I know the new creation you are, and let me give you a word or a phrase or something. And it's one of the most beautiful gifts I've ever received. And I cling to that word and chew on it and recognize that my faith is not bound by one thing. It's an act of imagination. The last thing want to say. So we have new eyes to see Christ, new eyes to see each other in the community of faith. But this one's probably the most important is that new eyes to see ourselves as Christ sees us. And I don't know how that sounds to you. When I say it, it sounds like, uh, well, of course, you know, I want to see me as Jesus sees me. It seems like, again, a little bumper sticker, but think about it. When, when Christ looks at you, what does he see? What does he feel? What's that like for you? Really important question. And I think it's a good time of the year to think about it. Because I guarantee that most of the time, what you think he thinks about you, not accurate. There's just too much other things going on, including our own sin nature. Um, I had a friend uh, does uh, works as a missionary, and uh, he's in the Middle East. And um, I saw him at a conference, and we were catching up, and I was very curious about his training and all this. And he says, well, one of the things I've been learning is that there's three kinds of cultures in the world. That's how they talk about it. He says there's fear-based cultures. These tend to be the more um, village or rural kinds of cultures where there's a lot of superstition. And people's lives really are oriented around fear of, uh, of doing something, whether it's bad karma or whatever. He says... Some cultures are fear-based. Some are shame-based. Um, the East, the Middle Eastern culture, the culture of the setting of our scriptures in Jesus' life was a shame-based culture. You don't lose face at any cost. It, it becomes the, the thing that you value above all. And he says, and then there's the guilt-based culture. Which one do you think America is? The West gift to the world, guilt. <laughs> and sometimes to the church. And so because of this culture that we live in, you're going to be wrestling with guilt a lot, which is kind of what we grew up with, and it's not all our parents' fault. We're going to wrestle with shame and fear as well. So how do you see yourself? And again, more importantly, how does Christ see you? So this is what Paul says before he talks about us being new creations. He says, he says for Christ's love um, compels us, urges us, some versions say constrains us. It influences everything I do, Christ's love. And for Paul, who could be kind of a hard guy when he needed to be, make no mistake, is that when he thought about how Christ looked at him, that Christ loves me. He says, we're convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for the one who died and was raised again. And it changes everything. 
We see this in the movies, but something about that is true to life. You ever you fall in love? Doesn't that change everything? Anybody come up to you when you're kind of in that romantic stage? You go, there's something different about you. When you know you're loved, it changes everything. In romance, as a son or a daughter, as a friend. And for those who do not know love, I mean, what could be more sad? So much to overcome, which is so why it's so important to make sure we understand that people know that God really does love them. And he looks at you with affection. And he looks at you and says, oh, man, did I do good work with you. And it doesn't mean we have things to overcome and all that. But I love you. I want to finish with a quote from uh, Henry Nouwen. Passed away a few years ago. It's called Life of the Beloved. Uh, Henry Nouwen was was, uh, a priest. He was a teacher. And uh, he got to know a guy named Fred. And um, Fred was a very urban, kind of a hip urban guy, kind of ran in those kinds of circles, moves to Manhattan, but wanted to continue his relationship with Nowen. And, uh, and he says, uh, Henry, would you, would you write to us, to me, how do you be spiritual in this urban, hip culture? And so this is what he writes him, and this is how he starts. He says, ever since you asked me to write for you and your friends about the spiritual life, I've been wondering if there might be one word I would most want you to remember when you finish reading all I wish to say. Over the past year, that special word has gradually emerged from the depth of my heart. Um, It is the word beloved. And I am convinced that it has been given to me for the sake of you and your friends. Fred, all I want to say to you is you are the beloved. And all I hope is that you can hear these words as spoken to you with all the tenderness and force that love can hold. My only desire is to make these words reverberate in every corner of your being. You are the beloved. And I can't think of a better word for you or for me tonight. As we think about a new year, as at the end of this year, 2012, whatever significance you hold, that you will find yourself more seeing and feeling and experiencing the beloved, being the beloved, than you do right now. That would be a good thing. And let me pray for that, and then Mike will come back up. Father, I pray that we might receive your love. And if people are here tonight that are racked with guilt or shame or fear in ways that make it impossible, we ask your Spirit to give us that new heart. And we pray for our friends. I pray all of us here would would have some sense tonight, even a little bit better sense as we go about our year that that you love us. You look at us with affection. You're not mad at us. You're not disappointed in us as much as you are just deeply in love with us. What a beautiful thing. And I pray, as Paul prayed for us centuries ago, I pray that the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened in order that we may know the hope to which you have called us the riches of your glorious inheritance and your incomparable great power for all of us who believe. May it be so. Amen.